Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. All right, we took a break for the summer, Matthew, and now we're back. And I'm not skipping the section on taxes because I preached on it two years ago. So I know there's somebody there who's paying attention. Am I getting every passage? But I preached on Jesus and politics. I looked it up. It's October 23rd, 2016. You can go find it on the website if you're interested. But this is connected because this is in a long series of arguments and confrontations that Jesus has with religious leaders in Jerusalem, in the temple, that's going to culminate with them being so mad that they want to kill him, that they want to... Cu- come up with false charges to put him to, to death so that he might be the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so let's read this morning the argument Jesus has about resurrection. This is God's word. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having left, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living." And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. God has spoken to us today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us now, that you would help us understand the scriptures and to be amazed at the wisdom of our Savior and to trust in your power to raise the dead. And so most of all, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and just not only be astonished at Jesus' teaching, but at his forever faithfulness to us, made clear through the cross and resurrection. And he does so for moral failures like us. So give us hope this day in the gospel, in Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you this, what happens after you die? It's a famous question. I mean, do you have an answer to give to yourself, to your neighbors? I know it used to be in our culture you could just go up to your neighbors and ask, if, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Right? And at that point, people knew what God you were talking about, the God of the Bible, uh, and they also had some idea what heaven was like. But from now, for many of our neighbors, and maybe even you, um, 
that's, that's the big question. Who is God? What is He like? We've got to talk about which God He is. We have to know, why would I want to spend time in His heaven? What is heaven like? Right? Because in our culture today, you're going to find in your own life, there's just a vague uncertainty about what happens after we die. We either don't talk about it, or we just say, you know, it's something and it's good. We don't have specifics. And I can just give you some ideas. Here's some examples. All right, Carl Sagan, the author of Cosmos, he was an atheist. And before he died, he said, I would love to believe that when I die, I'll live again. That some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But I know nothing more to suggest than that that wish is just, well, it's just that. It's wishful thinking. So I wish there was an afterlife, but it's just a dream. Uh, Sam Harris, another well-known atheist. He's not a public fan of religion. And he says, this is why I don't believe in the afterlife. Because when you experience brain damage in this life, you permanently lose some functions of your body. You just forget things forever. And belief in the afterlife requires us to accept that your whole brain is damaged in death, and then you rise with a fully functioning brain that's speaking English and remembering your grandma's name. And that's why he rejects it. It's implausible to him. Although he's not wrong, we'll raise up speaking and remembering. And I think what sums this up well is the TV show Lost. If any of you have wasted eight seasons <laughs> watching the show, right? their view of the afterlife is just the door with a giant white light. We don't know what's on the other side. We don't know why God's there, but it's just, it's just the white light. And so when you come to this passage, it's good news because Jesus gives us a much more solid, um, clear picture of what's to come. And it's, all, it's better than we could ask or imagine. And so let's look at it. Let's look at our passage. We've got three points. And before we look at what he's teaching, I want to learn from Jesus for a moment how he talks about these things. Because as we just heard, people, not everybody agrees with what the Bible teaches about resurrection. So you're going to get some pushback if you start talking to people. And so point one is we need to learn how to argue and disagree with our neighbors uh, from Jesus. Because he's teaching us here how to do that. And I think that's really the main point of all these passages. Is look at how brilliant Jesus is, is at, at evading hard questions and escaping the traps. And, and he shows us how to argue for the truth, the resurrection is real, and how to argue for a future bodily resurrection for everyone. Right? You, physically, are more permanent than you feel right now because of who you are made by the living God. And so here's the teaching, all right? The Christian doctrine of the resurrection, we say it in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of the sins, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And what it's saying is just summarizing the, the teaching of the Bible. Even, even if all you had was the Old Testament, this would be true. That a day is coming when God himself will return and raise everybody up physically, bodily, uh, to new life from the dead, from the dust. And you have a new body coming after death. It's going to be you, but it's going to be a better body. All right? that, that's, that's the resurrection that's coming. That In your body, you have a permanent future. It's the body God has prepared for you. 
So you think about what happened in Genesis. Right? God formed Adam out of the dust. In the new creation, God's going to do the same thing for you, but it's going to be a new body and a new creation. He, he, he has the power to do that. Uh, one verse you can find that is Daniel 12, verse 2, that that future of a new body will either be one of everlasting shame, separation from God, or everlasting life with God. And so that's what Jesus is defending when they, when they talk about the resurrection. That's the picture that the passage has in mind. And so when you come to our conflict, <laughs> these guys called the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question about something they don't even believe. Right? There was Sam Harris on this. They don't think the resurrection of the body is, is feasible. But for us, just we don't know who the Sadducees are, so we gotta, we got to talk about that. Who are these guys? And you know, notice as you go through the passage, there are two main groups that Jesus is fighting with, disagreeing with, I should say. There are the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they don't play nice together. They are religious enemies, I should say. They are political opponents. And if you want to walk into the temple and just start start a ruckus, if you want to be a troublemaker, all you have to do is just stand up and say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you've got the Sadducees over here saying, no way. And the Pharisees saying, yes, why don't you believe in God? Right? And so they just don't trust each other. And like, so you have the Pharisees who said the entire Old Testament is God's word from Genesis to Malachi. Right? They love the law, all 613 of them. And they're intensely moral, and they're waiting for the Messiah to, to bring about this resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees, they believe only in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So you can't even talk about Daniel because they think that's just a man-made book. Right? So you got this idea. The Sadducees, they think you just die and it's done. You have one life, live it well, live morally they're spiritual but not religious, you could say. It's the ancient version of that. And so these guys, the Sadducees, they were the wealthy, they were the educated, they were the priests, they were the ones working in the temple. They inherited their power, they worked with Rome, which the Pharisees also hated. And so if you want to sum up the Sadducees, I could say they are moral, spiritual people, highly educated, but their faith has been completely stripped of the supernatural. That makes sense? They're, they're very much like modern, Western, spiritual people. And so they come to Jesus with this question. Really, it's an exaggerated situation. It's just designed to make Jesus look bad because they don't believe in this thing. So you've got a family with seven brothers. The oldest gets married. They don't have children. He dies. And then the next youngest brother gets to inherit the wife. It says she's passed on. But she, she's given over to him in the will. And I know that sounds crazy to us, but it's actually a kind thing to do. And I need to convince you of that. But this is a gracious thing in the Old Testament law. It's from Deuteronomy. Because if you were a widow in the Old Testament, you were trapped. If you were a widow with no children, you were doubly trapped. It meant you couldn't, you couldn't get a job. You had no life insurance, no pension, no social security, no children to care for you. 
uh, you were automatically just put on the ancient system of welfare, which was to go out into the fields and collect whatever scraps you could find. And in general, if you were a widow, having already been married, men didn't marry women who'd been married before. They prized virginity. So if you were a widow, you were on your own. Your life expectancy would go down. And so God's law in pursuit of justice and care for the weak set up this system where the brother, the youngest, next youngest brother, could care for the wife of the deceased in order to care for her, um, to give her a future, to give her children so that she would be, be able to be cared for uh, later in life, and also to keep the land and the family, just to protect her future. And so this was God caring for the weakest in the community, All right? I mean, think about it if you were there. Ladies, you would look at your brother-in-law very differently if this was reality. You take good care of your husband. <laughs> all right, and so in this situation, there's seven brothers. They all marry her and they all die before her. And then in the resurrection, here's the question, whose wife is she going to be? They all had her. They all consummated the marriage. Is this going to be like some future where she has, um, I don't know what you would call them, brother wives. Right? There's just a lot of them where it's just her and seven guys. And Jesus responds, nope, <laughs> you're wrong. He's incredibly blunt. He just says, nope, you've got it completely wrong. And he's even more insulting. He says, you're deceitful. You're misleading the people. You don't know God or the scriptures. So, learn how to argue from Jesus. All right? Here's, here's the main point that I want to convince you, that if you follow Jesus and you talk about the resurrection of the dead, you're going to be made fun of, you're going to, be, you're going to get hostility from all sides. You need to expect it. Right? Because to, to the Pharisees in Jesus' day, he's too liberal, he's too nice. He hangs out with all the wrong people, and these are guys who believe in the resurrection of the dead. Right? They're moral. They assume Jesus chooses uh, love over law. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to offend conservative people in your life right? with grace. But also here you see Jesus offends the spiritual but not religious group because he's not ashamed to say, you're wrong. The Bible is God's word and this is reality. I mean, he says things like every part of the Bible matters. He's not ashamed to offend people with this idea of truth, that spiritual reality is just as certain as physical reality. Right? And that's really the point. If you are a Christian and you go public with your faith like you're called to do, both the liberals and the conservatives are going to be mad at you. They're not going to agree. Right? And so it's not something to run after, to look for, to embrace, to, to be contrarian for the sake of arguing, but it's just a reality. We have to learn to talk about these things because people are going to disagree with us and we're called to be witnesses of the resurrection. All right? So let me encourage you. Jesus had the highest view of God's moral law. He said, be perfect as God is perfect, and he made God's law more difficult to keep. He made it impossible. And the Pharisees didn't like him as lovers of God's law. It's not rational. And on the flip side, Jesus is even more tolerant and compassionate than the Sadducees. 
I mean, just listen to how they talk about this poor wife. I mean, she's, they had her. They passed her on like property. I mean, Jesus, the way he treated women was immensely better than the other men in his, his day and age. And yet he still offends those who are for love because he stands for truth and justice. And so if you hold to both parts of the gospel, that you need to love your neighbor as yourself, and that you stand on truth, that this is real, you're going to make people mad. What do you do with that? And here's, here's the next point, and this is the harder one for us Westerners. You have to be willing, like Jesus, to say that you're wrong. I don't like this, but this is just what Jesus says. Right? So if you're bothered by it, to, to tell our neighbors who don't believe in Jesus that they completely misunderstand and, and are incorrect about spiritual reality. Come talk to me. Right, we can talk about it. But Jesus isn't being mean about it. He's not putting a clever meme out there. He's not rubbing their faces in it. He just, he just says, this is not how things are. You don't understand. And so it's okay to tell people that they're wrong and that Jesus would say otherwise. And Peter tells us, always be ready to, to talk about the reason for the hope you have, the resurrection. But he also says, do it with gentleness and respect. And so I would say, just be ready to, to say out loud to our friends, to our neighbors, uh, you're wrong. Jesus would disagree with you on that. Throw Jesus under the bus. He can handle it. <laughs> Right? Say, I know Jesus has a really powerful argument for what our future is like. Would you care to hear it? Right? That's a conversation. All right? And so Jesus teaches us how to argue. He says, as Westerners, we need to be confident enough that the resurrection happened, that we can say that other worldviews are wrong. They have some truth. Right? Don't, don't blow them off as completely wrong and ignorant. No, that's not how the Bible works. But when it comes to the afterlife, Jesus says the resurrection of the dead is real. Now, second point. How does Jesus argue for this reality of resurrection? Because right? this is a trick question. If Jesus answers the way they want him to answer, he's either going to deny the resurrection, which ignores the Scriptures, it's clear, or he has to affirm polygamy, which the Bible also says is wrong. Right? And Jesus says, you're wrong, you don't know the scriptures or the power of the God, the power of our God. And so let me ask you this, if you were to use the Bible to defend, to argue for the resurrection of the dead, what would you use? Where would you go? Could you do it from the Old Testament? And 1 Corinthians 15 is a good one. We read it this morning. You could go to Isaiah 26, verse 19. The dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. The earth will give birth to the dead. It's pretty clear teaching. But the Sadducees rejected that. So here's what Jesus does. He goes back to Exodus, first five books of the Bible, 3, 6. It's this conversation between God and Moses. It's amazing. He argues for the resurrection of the dead that I've read. I've read this passage all my life, as long as I've been able to read in, in church, and never connected it to the resurrection, just like the Sadducees. <laughs> so did you catch the argument? 
It's, it's incredibly forceful. Everyone just stopped talking when he was done. He says, I am, have you not heard what God has said to you when you read? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do you hear it? See, Jesus' argument that everybody will rise from the dead is all wrapped up in the present tense in one word. I am the God of Abraham. He didn't say I was. Abraham's dead and it doesn't matter now. (laughs) It's present tense. I am. And what that does is it implies a present, ongoing, personal relationship with Abraham, even though he's been dead for centuries. Which is Jesus' way of arguing that death does not end your relationship with Yahweh, with God. And so he's, he's saying a couple things. One, you could say Abraham is alive right now in God's presence, but not in bodily form. And that's, that's, that's one of the Christian teachings. There's this intermediate state. You close your eyes and sleep. You go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord to wait for the resurrection of the dead, to come back with Jesus. You have a front row seat to what Jesus is promising here. But if he's arguing for the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection, it has to be more. Right? And here's the argument. It's all wrapped up in the covenant that when God entered into a relationship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with you and me, it's always in a covenant. It's always this promise of a personal relationship. And he calls it an everlasting covenant. It's permanent. Right? In covenant, we know what covenants are. It's just a formal recognition of a personal relationship. Marriage. That's a covenant relationship. And so when Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, he's referring to just the way God relates to people. And you go back to Genesis 17. here's, Here's some of the details we need to fill this in. God promises in a covenant to be in a permanent relationship with his people. It's permanent. Genesis 17 says, I'm making an everlasting covenant with you. I will be yours and you will be mine and so will your descendants. And it's a deeply personal relationship. God says you are mine. And you can say to God, my God. That's personal. Abraham is in that kind of Relationship. The only thing we have to compare it to is a father-son type relationship or a husband and wife, where it's permanent and it's personal. Right? And possessive, I would add. Permanent, personal, and possessive. Because think about it. I can talk about my wife this way. She is my Bethany. Right? Doesn't mean I own her, <laughs> but I can claim her as mine the same way I do with my Jonah, my Talitha, my Ezra, my Samson. They belong to me. If someone else has a Jonah, that's great. It's good for them, but he's not my Jonah. That's the language of covenant. Abraham's God and God's Abraham. And what it is, it's just an expression of love. It's an expression of connection, of relationship. And in that kind of covenant, there is nothing you can do to escape that relationship, right? There's nothing Jonah can do to, to stop being my son. Right? Even when he's doing something that embarrasses me, I'm still going to say, yeah, that one's mine. <laughs> That's grace. 
the relationship doesn't end. That's how God talks about his people in the covenant. He's not ashamed to be claimed, to be in a permanent, possessive, and personal relationship. And you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were not, um, we would call them saints, but they weren't saints. They were liars, they were cheaters, um, they had polygamy, they didn't treat their servants well, there was bad parenting. I mean, they needed grace, and yet God claims them. Right, and so Jesus' argument for future resurrection, here it is. It's God claims his people permanently in a personal relationship. And because it's permanent, not even death is going to end it. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. And so when God said, I'll be with your God forever, he says that, that, that in there is the promise for resurrection of the dead. Because his love is permanent. He's not going to let you go. I mean, this is the painful reality. For us, relationships are impermanent. They do end. That's what death is. It's painful. And yet for God's covenant love, for this covenant relationship to be personal, permanent, for His steadfast love to endure forever, it includes a promise to raise you from the dead. That's Jesus' argument. Because I love you, I'm not going to leave you alone, and not even death can keep you from me. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if you're in relationship with me, I am your God. And so what do you do with that? This is what I want to do this morning as we get ready to come to the table. Is use that argument on your heart. Because the God of the Bible, the God who is, the God who made you, and said, I want to be in that kind of intensely personal relationship where I can possess you and you can possess me because I love you. I'm going to pursue you, even through death. Now, how did Abraham get that deal? Right, this is a great deal <laughs> to have someone love you like that. And the answer is the blood of the covenant, which is a beautiful picture as we come to communion. It's in Genesis 15. It's one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Abraham asked God, how do I know that you will be for me like this? How do I know you'll defend me? How do I know you can trust me? These are the kind of questions he's asking. Or in the light of our conversation, how do I know that you could even raise me from the dead? How do I know you'll be faithful? And God says to Abraham, I want you to get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a, a pigeon, and a turtle dove and I want you to kill them, cut them in half. And the big animals were cut in two, and the birds were set on opposite sides. And what Abraham knew, this was the ancient way of entering into a personal covenant relationship with one another. They're going to cut a covenant. And what it was is, is the two parties, the two groups would walk through the, the pieces, and they were saying, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, let me be killed. Let my blood be shed. Let me be split in two like these animals. Let the birds pick over my carcass. It's pretty blunt. It's a powerful promise. And so what Abraham assumed is that he would walk through the pieces and promise to be perfect, to be blameless, to keep up his end of the deal so that God would walk alongside him 
and defend him always, to never leave him alone. All right? And so this is how they made a deal. They would sign it in blood. But to the astonishment to everybody, when you read this passage, it's not Abraham who walks through the pieces with God. Abraham's put to sleep. And God alone walks. And all you see is fire and smoke, signs of God's presence, where God walks through the pieces and says, I promise to be your personal, permanent, possessive God forever. And not only will I keep my end of the deal, I promise to keep your end of the deal. And if you break your end of the deal, because I know you will, because you're Abraham and I know you, <laughs> I'm going to pay the penalty of that for you. That's, what it, that's what's happening. I mean, God signed up to die for Abraham to pay the price for his sins when he walked through the pieces. Abraham didn't really understand it at that point. It's not clear. But Abraham's not perfect. And so God is saying, my blood has to be shed. And how does uh, smoke and fire bleed? It can't. So therefore, God must be in some mysterious way promising, even at the beginning, in seed form, we know now he's promising to come in bodily form to bleed for Abraham. The blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins to make us belong to God forever. The gospel's in the Old Testament. <laughs> now, Genesis doesn't tell us how that works itself out, but Jesus, centuries later, a few chapters from where we're at now, he's having a meal with his disciples. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus says, this is the bl my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus came to do. So Jesus is saying, I'm the God of Abraham, and I'm going to pay the price for you to be in a covenant relationship with me, and part of being in a covenant with this God means a future in heaven, a bodily resurrection, a covenant relationship that never ends. And so for Jesus to be faithful to us and for us, to buy our future resurrection, he has to shed, shed his blood. He has to, to go through what those animals in Genesis 15 did. Go through the darkness, to bleed. Only he didn't have anyone to chase the birds away. But even more painful for Jesus is he takes the penalty our sin deserves. For the very first time, Jesus experienced his father as impersonal. God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? For the first time, Jesus heard, you're not mine. Even as he cries out, God, you are mine, where are you? And he does that so that your and my relationship with Jesus will never go into the past tense. Ever, it can't. Because of the blood of the covenant. Because the price has been paid. It's a gift of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So Jesus quoted one verse, and he built his whole argument on the one tense, <laughs> present tense. I am your God, and I'm not going to leave you alone, and that will never end. 
you see the motivation for believing this? I know you go out and talk about the resurrection of the dead, and the old way to do it was to say, you don't want to go to hell, do you? You should believe in Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, don't you want a relationship like this that's permanent, personal, and possessive? The God who claims you when no one else will, when you are embarrassed of you and everyone else is ashamed of you, I am not ashamed to be called your God. And the bonus that comes along with that is freedom from hell and punishment. It's the gift that keeps on giving eternal life. So you have to learn how to argue. You have to talk about these things. You have to love the covenant. Love Jesus' argument. Use it on your heart regularly. And lastly, live it. If resurrection of the dead is that certain because Jesus is alive, you've got to argue with yourself. You've got to talk to yourself. And that's part of what's happening here. I mean, just think about it. The resurrection of the dead means your future is just as physical, only more so than it is right now. Part of the promise to Abraham was, I'm going to dwell with you on the land. And because we're children of Abraham by faith, God is promising, I'm going to dwell with you on the land, the new heavens and new earth. It's astounding. There is a, you have a bodily upgrade coming that's still going to be you. It's a non-selfish you. It's a you that if you saw right now, you would fall down and worship because you're so much better than you are right now. <laughs> but it's a gift. You know, just think about it. You're going to have physical relationships That's what Jesus assumes here. You're going to have a physical relationship with other people in heaven. You can give hugs and high fives and eat meals and we're going to explore this new creation together to have dominion and and rule over it as we were intended to back in the beginning. And second, and this is the one that gets all the questions, is Jesus saying we're not going to be married in heaven? And Jesus says the resurrection, heaven, is even better than marriage. It's verse 30. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And it sounds like torture if you've been married for a long time because, because we love our spouse. It's like you've been forever friend-zoned with the person you spent your whole life with. But if you hear what Jesus is saying about resurrection... He's saying to the Sadducees, you guys just don't have a clue how good what's coming. And so when you think about marriage in heaven, think about something even better, a a relationship with people around you that's even better than the marriage you have right now. The intimacy, the friendship, just the bond, the connection. It's going to be better than the bumbling and stumbling you're doing right now with your spouse. God's power is going to improve all that. I mean, it's pretty astounding. And when you get there, you're going to realize you don't even need marriage because you will be married to Jesus. That's the whole point. It's heaven being married to earth and us living in this world of love, physical love, embodied love, friendship love together. And you're going to be more fully you. The moment you get that first hug from Jesus, St. Teresa would say, it's going to make everything that happened before it feel like a ba- one night in a bad hotel. 
It's this, the promise that's coming is, is better than marriage. And go back and listen to what we talked about on friendship in Proverbs. Friendship says to Emerson, if you knew you could spend anywhere in the universe with a friend, a good friend, you'd be happy for a thousand years. He's just ripping off what heaven's going to be like with other people because Jesus is there and has made us new. And lastly, as we, we do this, the resurrection is designed to build hope in you. I love George Herbert's poem, The Dawning. He's a Presbyterian pastor and poet. And he, he just looks at the, the tomb. The only thing left in the tomb is Jesus' burial cloth. It's just laying there. And he says, you know what? Learn to use that. He says it poetically. Take Jesus' grave clothes and use them to dry your eyes and to tell your heart that the resurrection is coming and it's certain. It, Jesus himself will wipe away your tears. It's only because Jesus is alive that you can honestly tell yourself and others that it really will be okay. <laughs> It'll be okay. Jesus will fix that. We don't always understand how or why, but he's going to fix it. It hurts now, but this is a light momentary affliction in comparison to what's coming. So, go and learn what this means. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. But because Jesus has died according to the Scriptures and rose according to the Scriptures, His relationship with you will never go into the past tense. That's good news. Let's pray. Now, Father, I pray you would, uh, as we come to the table, uh, just use our meal with you to give us a taste of the future, to build hope in us, to give us the strength we need for the trials that are coming and that, are, that we are in the midst of. But most of all, deepen our love for Jesus so that we might, we might be witnesses for the truth. Just help us to be in awe that you would even show us that these things are real and that we believe it. And so we ask now that you would eat and drink with us as you have promised. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite